Well, the year was 1865. Just a few months earlier, the Civil War had ended. And we see an army detachment riding out in the far west. They were in the Wyoming, Montana area. And the the detachment had been split up into two groups. The first group was led by Captain C.E. Palmer. Uh, The latter group was uh, General C.E. Palmer. And then the latter group, P.E. Connor, was behind them. And uh, so the, the lead group was stopped. They got up on a ridge. They're looking over beautiful, beautiful area. Finally, the major who was with this lead group says, you see those two plumes of smoke out there? Well, Captain Palmer said, I, no, I don't see him. Let me look through my field glasses. And look, I don't see him. Where? Where? He says, oh, in the saddle, in the saddle there. You see that? Okay, let me look. No, not at all. In the meantime, General Connor comes up and uh, he says, yeah, there's a, the Major says there's two plumes out there. And so uh, General looks with his, his telescope, looks close. No, doesn't see him. You sure? Yep, looks close again. No. Doesn't seem well, and in the meantime, you know, they sent out Captain Frank North with a couple of uh, Pawnee scouts, and, and he says, well, you guys go check it out, and we'll, we'll get, catch up with you in a couple of days, because that was probably out 50 miles that he was looking. Two days later, Captain North comes with his Pawnee scouts, and he says, yeah, the major was right. There's an Indian settlement right where he pointed Well, the major happened to be Jim Bridger, Major Jim Bridger. Now, some of you know the name. He was one of the greatest mountain men that ever opened up the West for us. Some of you have seen the movie The Revenant. And I mentioned in the earlier service, I had not seen the movie The Revenant for two reasons. One, a person I knew who was a real fan of Hugh Glass said, no, it wasn't, wasn't good. The second reason was, I just couldn't imagine Leonardo DiCaprio as being a mountain man. Just didn't. Although I have been told after the first service that he did very well with it, so I guess I'll have to see the movie. But anyhow, if you saw that movie, you realize that uh, he was in a party very early on, quite a number of years earlier, Hugh Glass was when he was attacked by that grizzly bear. And some legend says that Jim Bridger was with the young guy that was staying with him that abandoned him. Well, I don't, historically, I don't think that holds water. I, he was in that larger group, but he was not uh, with Hugh Glass. But he was an incredible mountain man who knew the woods and had eyes to see that these guys could not see. You see, that's what we need to do. We need to see and observe not just the apparent stuff, but the other stuff. Not just take a cursory observation, because there's a lot more deeper things going on. And we are given those eyes through faith in Jesus Christ, as this passage will show. You see, we in this country are suffering through one of the greatest tragedies in the world, and that tragedy is abortion. 
And it goes far beyond a survey of who's pro-life and who's pro-choice or the politics or executive orders. To the astute observer, it is a deeper spiritual battle and it must be fought spiritually. So let's look at this passage. This passage in John is an incredible passage. It gives kind of the creation in the New Testament here, but we'll see. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, when we look at this, we see this passage is talking about the divine character of the Word, who is Jesus, of course, the incarnate Jesus. And it tells us that he was in the beginning before time. Now, that's mind-blowing in and of itself, simply because we all live in time. We can't really conceive of anything beyond time. But when it says he was in the beginning, he's even before time. And the word was face to face with God the Father. And we see this uh, Trinitarian illusion right here. He was face to face with God the Father, and the word was God. Now, if you look at this thing grammatically, you see that the word is the subject and it has three predicates. The first predicate was that the word was in the beginning. The second predicate was that the word was face to face with God. And the third predicate was that the word was God. Now, the first and the third of those predicates actually precede the subject, which is the word. Little grammar lesson there. It, they do that in the Greek for emphasis. Now, the reason I bring all this is that one of the things that happens, and many, many of you may have had an experience of having to deal with Jehovah's Witness. And so when they come to your door and you open your Bible to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, it's right there. The Word was God. The Jehovah's Witness will immediately tell you Oh, that's not, the word was a God. That's what their translation says, which, by the way, is don't even bother with the New World Translation. <clears throat> I see use for most Bible translations. That one I have no use for. I wouldn't even get near it. But anyhow, they, they says because the article isn't there, the word was a God. The problem with the Jehovah's Witness is they know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, nor do they know Greek grammar. Because if they understood Greek grammar and they put that article before God to say it was the God, it would change it grammatically. Then God would become the subject and the word would become the predicate. And you would have to read it, and God was the word. But that's not what John was telling us. John was telling us that the word was God. The other thing that I always suggest that if the Jehovah's Witness come to you, go to John eight fifty eight, and that Jesus is debating 
with the Pharisees. He's going back and forth, you know, and he tells them at one point, Abraham delighted to see my day. And they say, Abraham, he says, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, ego a me in the Greek, I am, or I am that I am. That's the holy name of God that God gave Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. And they took up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying he was Jehovah's God. Okay, and so this is who the word is. The word is God. All creation was made with him, and without him nothing exists. We're talking about creation ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means creation out of nothing. Now that is a mind-blowing concept. That is, it really is. It was um, through the most of the month of December, Jeremiah and, and Julie and their family came back from Brazil, and they, they spent and they left just after Christmas. And one of the things uh, that occurred during that time was Nehemiah was enamored with a, a little thing that Jeremiah had made. It's called a fire eater engine. It's a fire eater engine, and you take this little engine, and, and you get a fire going in this little thing. It's actually made out of a doorknob and silver soldered, and you have a wick, and you get your fire going. And you spin the, fi- spin the flywheel, and you set it right next to the cylinder, and it'll keep going. It just keeps going. As long as that flame's there, that thing will keep going. It's called a Stirling engine, is what it's called. It's, it's, it's normally called a, a Stirling engine. And Jeremiah made that out of bar stock. One of my elders in the church that I had at Paxton was a master craftsman. And he took Jeremiah under his wing. And like I said, Jeremiah used a lathe, used milling machine, and made that whole business before he went into high school. In fact, when he went into high school, Jeremiah took that, plus another little steam engine that he had made out of brass, and he he brought it to the uh, metal shop teacher in the high school. And the metal shop teacher looked at him and he said, uh, don't bother to take my class. There's nothing I can teach you if you're making stuff like this. But the point is, when you look at that, you look at it and you say, man, he made it from scratch. Well, not quite. He needed to have the bar stock. He didn't make the bar stock. He needed to have machines that could do it, lays, milling machines, all kinds of files, various different things. He didn't make anything ex nihilo. He was just utilizing that. God is making stuff ex nihilo. That's incredible. And then if we look at verses 4 and 5, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and it has not overcome it. Now, when we're talking about light, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, but you could preach a series of sermons on how Jesus is the light. But one of the things I want to emphasize this morning 
is one of those aspects is he gives understanding. Makes us to understand the world as it really is. You know? And so that's what he gives us. And so in him was life, and the life was the light of the world. And so we, we see this, and the word life, of course, is zoe. Now, William Hendrickson, in his commentary on this, he says, when he's speaking about life here, he's talking mostly about the, he's talking about the spiritual life, and, and I would agree with him. He really is talking about the spiritual life in John 3. You really will see that when Nicodemus comes to him, but we're, we're not going to go there today. Um, but you see that. But he also is speaking about the physical life because back up in, in verse 3, it talks about creation. And, um, and so we see the physical life, a life form in creation. Um, and, and that is incredible. Human life. You look at all of creation, and it is amazing. You, you see everything. But especially this aspect of life, because God alone makes life. It is unique. Man cannot replicate it. And in fact, man doesn't really understand it all that well. When we were in Illinois, Karen worked at a hospital uh, in Gibson City Hospital, and one of the doctors there, his name was Neil Nelson. And uh, Neil was the nephew of one of my parishioners, a godly woman. Her name was Billy Nelson, wonderful woman. But Neil was a new doctor. And Karen mentioned one day, and he was all full of himself. And he said, man, I could keep hamburger alive. And I don't know whether Karen said anything to him or not, but she may have. It's like, yeah, no, you better. And, and I think very soon he learned how limited we are, especially when it comes to life. Now, a few years ago, um, I graduated from Wallkill High School, and a few years ago, um, when I came back, I got in con- one of my classmates got in contact with me, and, and our class, okay, I'll let you know, the class of 68 at Wallkill High School, has been getting together once a month. A lot of us get together, and one of the close classmates of mine that got together is a guy by the name of Alan Crawford. Now, especially when we first, I first started meeting with them, I realized Alan had always been interested in cars and anything mechanical. And at that time, he was restoring an old Ford 8N tractor. Some of you know the Ford 8N. I had a Ford 8N when I was at Waterbrook. The thing nearly killed me several times. I just <laughs> had split brakes, and those brakes never lined up. Anyhow... Um, but uh, it was a Ford 8N, and he completely restored it, and it looked like the day it drove out of the factory. You know, you can do that. You get an old tractor like that, and uh, it can be dead, will not run. You replace all the parts. Lo and behold, it runs. You can't do that. You can't go to the morgue 
and replace the parts that didn't work, and you can, and a person will live. It doesn't happen. Only God gives life. Only God gives life. And that's it. it it's an incredible gift of God that we have. And so, all things are incredible that are living. In fact, Psalm 156 tells us, all living things praise God. But we're not all equal. Not all living things are equal. Human beings are unique because they're created with the imago dei, the image of God. That's what makes us valuable. That's what makes us special. And because we're special, we can praise God in a special way. You know, we're unique among all creation. We are created for eternity. Now, some of you in this congregation out there have been coming to this church from a long, long time. And remember the former pastor, John Vance, and you might remember him before John and Marlene Vance had children. They had a dog named Buck. Some of you may remember Buck. I remember every time we went to see John and Marlene, Marlene would get Buck out, and you would have thought Buck was the most incredible, fantastic dog in the universe. I think he was a beagle mutt mix of some kind. I don't know. He, but, you know, he would brag on this dog and everything. And, and, and so what happened then, thankfully, Gwyneth was born. <laughs> the first time Buck growled at Gwyneth, Buck became a dog again. <laughs> and then Meredith was born. And, of course... Buck was a very special family dog to both Gwyneth and Meredith and the whole family then. But then Buck died. And I remember Marlene coming and saying, yeah, after Buck died, she told the girls that, I think she told the girls that that Buck would be in heaven. And being the hard-hearted theologian that I was, I told Marlene that, you know, we have no assurance at all that any pets are going to be in heaven. Of course, we don't have any word in the Bible that they won't either, but at least that. But that is a difference. And in fact, uh, it is a big difference. And also the big difference is our worship of God. Even though all living things praise God by being what they are, humans have a special task of worshiping God. John Calvin wrote it this way. He said, the chief object of life is to acknowledge and worship God, which alone is our principal distinction from the brutes. We acknowledge God. We worship God. That's what our life is for. That's why we were created with the Imago Dei. And that's what we need to do. Now, how do we apply this? Well, first way we apply this is to understand that abortion is a profound attack on life. 
not just the life of the individual who is being aborted, but it is also an attack on the author of that life. That's what it is. It is an attack on Christ. It's an attack on Christianity. I know people criticize pro-life people for being a one-issue individual. Of course we're not. We look at a lot of issues. But what they seem to lack is, they seem to lack any understanding of how profound that issue is. It's kind of like standing up and saying, you know what? You know, Hitler wasn't... You know, Hitler did a lot of good things. He got the German people out of a depression. He got the economy going, which he did. He got science going. Boy, they, they developed more things during that war. Um, they were the only ones that had a jet fighter in the, in, the, in the war, which he did. And then turning around and saying, yeah, but that little thing with the, you know, the concentration camps and the, you know, and all the, the, the slaughter of six million Jews and Christians. Let's understand many Christians were in that too. You know, well, that's just one thing. Yeah, it's just one thing. It's the most important thing. And we need to understand that this is the most important thing. But this is the darkness. The reason people do that and don't think it's so important is because the darkness of sin, it's the darkness of Satan. And that's what we have. In 1 John 5, 19-21, that Bob read, you notice the passage, it tells us that believers are of God, but the world is in the power of Satan. And that believers have a relationship with Jesus Christ that gives us what? Understanding. So that we know the truth. But the darkness of the world destroys. That same passage I mentioned earlier that you used with the Jehovah's Witness, use that John 8, 44. Again, he's going back and forth with the Pharisees and they're talking about, well, who is, who is his real father? And Jesus turns around and says, your real father is Satan. Your father is the devil, who is the father of lies, he goes on to say, and who was a murderer from the beginning. That's that darkness. That's that darkness. By the way, that John passage also goes on in verse 21 and says, tells us to flee from idols. These little children flee from idols. That's tonight's sermon. Come back at six. Idols. You see, Jesus has given us, when we trust in Jesus Christ, he has given us understanding so that we know the truth. And, uh, and we have understanding about what the truth is. It's very interesting. Early, early days of Roe versus Wade, 1973. And this was actually before Roe versus Wade. I remember, you know, leading up to Roe versus Wade, you had a lot of people advocating Abortion, And when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, I went to a liberal Presbyterian church, not in the morning for worship, but I, in the evening. They had a youth group. And they had this big discussion about that. And, and I said, you know, 
if they would give me the Bible, the problem was they were so liberal that they didn't really believe the Bible. But I said, if you give me the Bible, I says, I can prove to you that that, that baby is a person from conception. And in, right in Psalm 51, 5, where David says, in sin my mother conceived me. What was David saying in this passage? He was saying that, that his mother, it, at the point of conception, he was a sinner. Well, if he had moral culpability, then he was a person. Because non-persons don't have moral culpability. Well, guess what, since then? Now the science has studied and looked at DNA. And at the point of conception, guess what? That child has its own DNA. It's not the mother's DNA. It's not the father's DNA. It's its own DNA. Yes, borrowed from mother and father, but it's its own DNA. The World and Everything In is a podcast from World Magazine. Some of you may have been, may listen to it. Uh, I was listening to it a couple weeks ago. And um, they, uh, they had an article about Joe Scheidler. And, of course, I think it's really relevant because ever since that time, I don't know whether you've heard of anybody debating abortion. I just haven't heard of it anymore. Why? Because we have all the truth on our side. Pro-life has all the truth. They have none. All they can do is scream, pro-choice, pro-choice, pro-choice. Whatever that's supposed to mean. But in this uh, uh, podcast, they uh, were talking about Joe Scheidler, who had recently died. And Joe Scheidler was a Roman Catholic, and he was at the forefront of the pro-life movement. And they gave a quote, and this was very interesting. I thought, he said, he was talking to someone who had, had come over to the truth, probably was converted. Most people you find when they, they come have, been, have had a conversion experience. And, and so he said, when you were on their side, why the zeal? Why the enthusiasm? Why the hatred of us? Why the hatred of God? And she said, because this is our church. This is our religion. And that's what it is. It's highly emotional. Rush Limbaugh, those of you who have listened to Rush Limbaugh, Rush for years has said that abortion was the sacrament of the radical feminist movement. It's a religious thing. And so it is. And that's why the gospel is so necessary. Because it's the power of the gospel that gives understanding and overcomes the darkness and the lies of Satan. That's what the gospel does. When people realize that, yes, they are sinners, hopeless and helpless, and they need a Savior, and that Savior was the God who became flesh, died on the crossroads three days later to take away sins. To take away sins. And when you look at this whole thing, you look at that, and some of you might be saying, well, aren't there non-Christians who are pro-life? And that's true. We call that common grace. There are common grace, and people see the logic through common grace. 
And it's good, and it has its arguments, and we work, you know, through the political system with that common grace, and that's good. But the gospel gives so much more. The gospel gives, gives us more because the gospel, first off, gives us eternal life. It's through the gospel we have eternal life. And so it is that, that the gospel not only saves the life of the unborn, but it saves the person for eternity. It gives eternal life. It gives abundant life. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He's talking about eternal life and abundant life here on earth. And that's the kind of life for those who trust in Christ. That's why when we support these uh, pregnancy support centers, you've got one here in Newburgh that you support. We have uh, up in Kingston, we have one in, in, in New Paltz, Kingston, New Paltz, that we support up there. Well, the key thing that they do is not just talk women out of heaven and abortion. The key thing they do is they share the gospel. That's the most important thing because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And that's why we support them. And that is the major focus of that. And so that is also why we pray for another great awakening and why the gospel is the center of being truly pro-life. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, how thankful we are that you sent Jesus to die for us, that through him we have understanding. We can understand truth. We don't have to flee it. Even when we understand the truth of our own sinfulness, we don't have to flee it because Jesus redeemed us. We thank you for that grace. We pray for another great awakening in this land. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.